Welcome to the M Files. You are listening to Valerie and Ella Mayers, Patty Wood Finkel, and John Woodward, bringing you the news, reviews, and interviews from the museum world. On this edition of the M Files, we will be interviewing our friend, museum colleague, past student, and former intern Shaley George, curator for the National Orphan Train Complex in Concordia, Kansas. Shaley has a degree from the University of Wyoming in Anthropology and a degree in Museum Studies from Casper College. Shaley is also very active in regional museum organizations, having presented with Mountain Plains Museum Association. Now it's time for the museum wire. So the magic hat is back, and Patty's going to pick another topic out for today's discussion. And today's topic is fundraising versus friend raising. Now this is an interesting topic for me because I didn't actually know what friend raising was. I had to ask them when we were putting this topic in the hat exactly what it was. So could you explain to our listeners who might not be as educated as you guys are? Well, it's really not <laughs> one versus the other. They function in tandem to build advocacy for your organization. So everyone's pretty familiar with fundraising. Uh, you know, it's different types of activities that a nonprofit or um, a series of nonprofits will take part in to help raise money for a specific initiative or general operations at a museum. Fundraising, on the other hand, is it not so much? It, it takes the same a similar form. But what you're doing is, like Val said, you're, you're building that advocacy, you're building alliances, you're recruiting volunteers, you're doing a lot of the, the personal side, but you're not seeking a direct financial gain. And I think you can also target specific groups within your friend raising. Perhaps you are trying to cultivate a younger audience for museum programming. So there might be special events where you're not necessarily charging an admission price, but you just want people to come to the museum to become aware of what you offer. And hopefully from that group, then you would be creating new positive relationships. Now, fundraising does not have to take uh, a, a form similar to fundraising. Things like uh, lectures and programs, things that are offered free to the community, in many ways are friend-raising activities because what you're doing is, like Val said, you're reaching out to specific groups, specific age demographics, getting them engaged, getting them involved. So that can be as profitable for friend-raising as, say, um, an opening reception for your key donors or uh, some sort of special access event. So in our case, some of the events that we've had in the past, of course not this year, um, would count as friend-raising. So I mean, even looking in a virtual environment, you could do friend-raising through virtual tours or virtual programs. Or, I mean, even uh, you could probably even bend the rules a little bit and say, you know, some of your social media uh, programming, like videos on your Facebook page or smaller activities could count. But, you know, that's splitting the hair mighty thin. So we've really been friend-raising all along without even knowing it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and sometimes you lean on your fundraisers to assist with this fundraising. It doesn't have to just be the museum staff, director, development director, but um, as serving as a board member in the past, 
we were actually charged with bringing our real friends to the institution, to the museum for an event. And we would each have small parties before, say, a big party or event or um, lecture at the museum. And that way we're really cultivating more of our circle to be part of the organization. So it's not something that has to fall heavily on one museum staff member. It could be the board. It could even be your volunteers that are helping to friend raise in, in so many ways. But it, it really is uh, building strong relationships, especially within your community. That's awesome. All right. Well, that wraps up the Museum Wire for today. Now let's head into our interview with Shaley George. Hey, Shaley, how's it going? It's going well. How about you guys? Ah, we're doing well, thanks. All right, my first question for you tonight is, what is the strangest thing that has ever happened to you at a museum? Now, this could be at the museum you're currently at, a museum you used to work at, or even a museum that you were a visitor at. Oh, geez. Um, I think probably when I first started working, when I was going through the collections and familiarizing myself with everything, I peeked behind the door and I was like, why is there a stick that says TNT? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, why is it in the collections room? And so God bless, no one had called about this stick. And so it's like this long stick with little clips on it that had TNT and they were what they called, oh gosh, flares. So you would put them on the train track a mile ahead of it so a mile out from where you were working. So if the train hit it, then you knew to get off the track. So that had been sitting in our depot since, God, it's closure in 1950 in a desk and then got moved into the collections room. And so I finally had to call and was like, um, fire department, what do I do with TNT and how do I get rid of it? Ooh, that lit up the state like fire marshal people they showed up the next day and they're like we will take this and like slowly walked it out of the building I'm like I've been flipping that thing around like my gosh like, like what is it you know it's like it's clearly fine but mm -mm. so they took it <laughs> luckily it had never been accessioned we didn't have to deaccession it <laughs> you can imagine like to the fire people like that'd be my note <laughs> And I love that as a museum person, that's your big concern. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm flipping around looking for a number. Like what year was it? What collection is it under? Is it just like it was there? No, nope, they just set it aside. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, Shelley, please tell us more about the Nat National Orphan Train Complex in Concordia. Oh, so we are the national home for the collection of orphan train writers records. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have all the records. I always say that, but the national orphan train, uh, the orphan train movement was a, the beginning of foster care and adoption in America and the formalization of it. So from 1854 to 1929, over 250,000 kids were placed out, uh, out West and overseas. And so we continue that research set up by our founding organization from Arkansas uh, to not only basically lobby for orphan train riders and their descendants to maintain and get their records from New York or Baltimore or any other city that placed kids out, but also do research ourselves for those descendants. And then a bigger grasp of the movement that has kind of been left out. It always amazes me how quickly we forgot about it. And so my big pieces of research, we have a genealogist on staff that does 
wonderful research for us, but I do the general research of understanding the movement as a whole. And so we house not only our depot museum and a 1917 depot, but our train car uh, building that opened last year. And then we have 32 new statues of orphan trainer riders around town, plus seven in our courtyard. So <laughs> we've kind of expanded into making the entire town our exhibit space. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, you know, with you working in Concordia, I uh, just sort of a segue, that's where my great grandfather was born, was in really? Cloud County, Kansas. So yes, it is. Good. Yeah. I, uh, so that's just a little little connection that I have there. But <laughs> well, if you ever need records, I, I know someone at the County Museum. <laughs> oh, trust me. My mother might take you up on that. Perfect. Uh, she, she, uh, she, she is a... Uh, a consummate genealogist. Perfect. <laughs> but, uh, so, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, the the National Orphan Train Complex. Uh, you know, you've been working there for about what, about six years now? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, starting July of 2014. It seems so, so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun, isn't it? Exactly. You know, could uh, you tell us a little bit more about how you got started in the museum world? You know, what, yeah. what was that inspiration? And notice John asked that question and not Val or I. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As I know all of you from different realms. Uh, but so I always loved museums growing up. And I guess I always should have ended up in one at more, I guess, easily than I did. Um, so I went to school for anthropology. That's where I met John. Um, we were in, on Greek row together. Uh, great times. And so then I went back to school. <laughs> we were, I went back to school about three years later at Casper College. And so I kind of turned my love of history and anthropology and collections into something else. And I wanted to explore that. And I didn't really know whether I was going to get into a master's or do something different. And Casper College really offered me a different avenue that not only saved me money, saved me time, but gave me, a, I think, a better education than I would have gotten somewhere else. Um, and so it prepared me for the museum world. And it made me more excited than I think I'd ever been about the museum world. I didn't know where I'd fit. Um, and so luckily that program prepared me and, and got me a job. So thank you <laughs> to Patty and Val, who were my instructor and mentor. Val was like my instructor, ment mentor, advisor, and employer all yep. in one. Yep. 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 <laughs> Shaylee is the best intern ever. Oh, <laughs> I miss the Tate <laughs> all the time. I miss Casper. I miss the whole museum crew. It's just amazing. As a complete segue, um, we just moved two cube exhibits into the lobby at the Tate. It's yeah. a all right one and the one fish, two fish. <laughs> so I've been telling everybody, everybody's like, oh, you have a new exhibit. I was like, no, we don't. Our intern, Shaylee, did this for us. Oh, I'm so glad that they're living up to it. <laughs> and the crinoids are staying, but God bless. Yeah. The amount of straight spray paint I put on those damn things. <laughs> so much. Um, and currently you're the curator. But could you tell us a little bit more about what that entails and talk about the collections themselves a little bit? Yeah, so for mine, being a very small museum <laughs> where it's me and two part-time employees, one a genealogist and one a high school kid, <laughs> a lovely Tucker who comes in on the weekends. Uh, I wear many hats <laughs> and in any small museum, that's what you do. You are the director, you are the, you know, collections. Um, you keep care of the collections, you do the exhibits, you 
do the face of the museum. That's a big part of my job is going out and being the face in not only my town, but traveling and doing presentations. And, and like I said, lobbying for the records. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many, many hats, <laughs> volunteer coordinator, all those things. Um, so it's, it's a lot to do and a lot, you know, within that world <laughs> and every day is very different. And our collections include a number of, of finds. So my favorite collection is the, uh, well, it goes between the American Female Guardian Society collection, which is our actual orphanage records that we hold, which is one of hundreds that were involved with the orphan train, but it gives you a better idea of how they kept records on kids, why there's proof of records for children, which is a big thing in our feet, like in our orphan train world where lies were told so often that records burned. It's important to have those. Um, but also the Anna Laura Hill collection, which is pictures and checkup documents and showing, yes, this is what they did and how they did it and how they kept care of the children. And so it really creates this narrative that is really helpful. Um, but we have thousands of orphan train records as well that were turned over either um, by the family members, by the orphan train writer themselves or by our own research. Um, and so that just keeps growing. So every descendant that comes in, we get another name. And we can keep researching until those orphanages release those records. The only one that's really done that is the juvenile asylum. And so it's this kind of push and pull <laughs> to build our collection. Um, other than that, we have personal items of orphan train riders that can go from, you know, a trivet that John Jacobus made uh, to a banana basket one of them made <laughs> to a number of things that come out, but also say the clothes that they wore on the train. And so the important piece of my job especially being an adopted kid, is telling their story from when they were placed out, when they were born, what happened to also the end and that it doesn't end. Many have hundreds of descendants. We have one family that was placed out in 1850 that has over 700 uh, as of the 1990s. And so, you know, being able to tell that story is really important, but having the artifacts to back it up is even more important. So they come in all shapes and sizes. (laughs) So how do people find out about the um, museum and the collection and what you do? Um, yeah. Well, a- ironically, podcasts. I've <laughs> 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 done a few where we talk. Uh, this is the first one I, I get to talk about museums and, and how it fits in the museum world. Um, but I've done some podcasts uh, about it, doing media about it. Um, really, when I first came in, it was on this last leg of the orphan train coming out which is a book by uh, Christina Baker Klein, which it's a great novel, um, and though not closely enough to the history for, you know, for it to be a historical fiction to me, but it's a wonderful novel. And that created this huge worldwide phenomenon around the orphan trade. It was printed in, I think, over 45 languages. And so, so many book clubs came to us. We had three women from Dallas fly to Concordia, Kansas, like, Wichita up went like if in three days they'd been to Concordia and back to Dallas because of a book. And so that book cannot be <laughs> downplayed at all. Um, but when we first got started, it was Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> Do you remember that wonderful show with Robert Stack? Mm-hmm. Um, that's how our first organization got started. And so it's a lot with luck <laughs> for the orphan train because it's not really taught in schools. I'd never heard of it before I applied to my job. Uh, so thank you for letting me learn how to write a good cover letter. Um, Val, <laughs> who helped me with her resume. Uh, but, you know, it's this fascinating 
orphan train is fascinating where like some descendants know, some don't. And so it's getting into genealogy and then they come blind and they have no idea. They're like, well, I lose my grandpa at this time. Could he be? And it's like, well, we'll start looking. And so it's fascinating. The best responses overall when we get a bunch of people have been newspaper articles and such. Um, during my time, it was the Chicago Tribune article that was written by a freelance author here in Kansas. And then it went nationwide. And so it was just like this huge blow up of like, oh my God, <laughs> we're in the Chicago Tribune. And then we tracked it. We're like, oh, it's like 3 million people have possibly read this story. It was just a tiny little story and it blew up our museum. So, you know, it's always a surprise how they hear about us. <laughs> so, you know, Shaley, you mentioned that uh, you have a good relationship with the, the people of Concordia and that the, the town itself has become, you know, an extension of your of your facility with, uh, with the statues scattered around town. Mm -hmm. You know, how 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 else has the, the community embraced uh, the National Orphan Train and, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, what the what those connections are? Yeah. So we obviously, as an organization, didn't start here. Uh, we started in 1987 in Springdale, Arkansas, of all places, by accident. And so when the collection was gifted to us and we inherited it um, after proposing and trying to fight for it, that was in 2003. And I was actually just today talking to my board member who they announced at the chamber dinner in 2003 that we've gotten an actual orphan train complex. Like the records are coming and everyone was like cheering and screaming. And then somebody was like, what are we talking about? Like, <laughs> some had heard, some had not. <laughs> so it's been a long haul of, of convincing people that this is a good thing. And then finally we became the biggest draw to our town and our county. Um, and so thousands of people, you know, before 2020, <laughs> we were on par to continue doing at least 5,000 a year, if not six or 7,000 building on that. And so when I first started, it was 2,600 that year. And so we really kind of skyrocketed <laughs> and kind of kept growing. Um, and so I think getting them to believe in us was a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when I came in, it was a month after a gentleman had come through and the county had hired him to go through and evaluate our county to see how we could better attract people, not just as like visitors, but making them want to stay. But really on visitation, he was like, he was talking about signage. He was talking about how the storefronts looks. But then at the very end, they said at the, this big, you know, production he did at the end, this presentation, they're like, why hasn't he talked about us? <laughs> and so he finally says, the National Orphan Train Complex is one of the best small museums I've ever seen in this country. And this is what you should focus on. And so when I stepped in, I inherited a very lovely gift. <laughs> so they believed in us and our county and our city and our tourism. It came to me and said, will you help us brand the town, the orphan train town? Luckily, they gave me about six months to get started uh, <laughs> at my job. And then I was like, I don't know how to brand things. Great. We're going to try. <laughs> so that's where the statues came in. We had had seven and we started putting them out and I didn't know how they'd be received. Um, my initial plan was for a hundred and then Bob Steimel, who works at our community foundation was like, get it together <laughs> and please do 50 first. Like that's a big deal. And I was like, perfect. So technically it's 51 new statues is what we're aiming for. And so far we've done 32 and I have five more on the way. Um, so we're getting close to that 50. So I'm very, very pleased. So they have embraced us um, wholeheartedly. They volunteer for us and they talk kindly about us, which is a big deal. And making sure that I'm involved, that my board's involved is a big part of that. 
That is awesome. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned uh, your visitation numbers before 2020. Yeah, um, yeah we, we're all struggling with that one. Oh. So um, have you guys started turning to more virtual events and virtual mm-hmm. tourism? Um, have you upped your social media presence? Um, mm-hmm. what, what sort of things have you invented, created, come up with in this, this very trying year? Yeah, so we are working closely with, um, you know, we just did my first virtual presentation with university in uh, Missouri. Uh, that was my first keynote that I had to do virtually, which was like, <laughs> yeah, Missouri, it was a good one. <laughs> Missouri Western. Uh, and so that was a whole new experience. But during the quarantine, I started doing videos and more posts and really got into video production and actually doing highlights on artifacts and orphan train rider stories and being able to storytell through video was really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and boy, did that help because <laughs> we tried to put it out every single day that we were closed, you know, for people that were missing out and that really helped us. Um, and so we're pushing to make sure that we can keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, with, it feels like my time, and I think any director's time is really taken up with where do I get aid? How do I get aid? And how many grants do I have to write? <laughs> so, like, and like, how much stuff do I have to prove? And so that's really been my world after we opened and, and actually CARES packages came out. Um, so I'm hoping that this winter I can get more into the video production. We just got a grant um, through COVID relief to purchase video equipment so that we can live stream our celebration events. We can, you know, do videos and that kind of stuff. And so the production hopefully will get better. Um, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> so I've learned a lot. <laughs> So where can the listeners find your social media platforms? Where should we look? So if you go to Facebook, it's just National Orphan Train Complex. Uh, We're the one in Concordia, Kansas. Uh, There is one in Opelousa, Louisiana, not to be confused, wonderful place. Um, But also we are active sometimes on Twitter, not as much just because our audience is really on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, But also we have a YouTube channel, which we're uploading those same videos to. So, you know, talking about, you know, social media, what are, what are some of the challenges that you've run across? I mean, a lot of people have been embracing it, but you know, yeah. it's not, oh, okay, my parents aren't on social media, so <laughs> I ended up serving as my mother's snoop. But you know, what are some of the challenges you've, you've seen with social media as you begin to expand more? Yeah, so it's, it's always being on top of, of which one's the most popular. <laughs> How do you capitalize on those trends? If I was more inventive when one of them try to be, it'd be on TikTok. <laughs> like trying to figure out how do you make that orphan train cool when everyone thinks it's a depressing story. Uh, so it's always about like, how do you approach it? And how do you, I guess, share it with the world and make it fun enough to like look at? <laughs> the beauty of TikTok is that it's short and sweet. And that's what people like. They keep scrolling. Um but like say Instagram pictures, some people are just going to love it. And sadly it takes a lot of management and that's where I fail a lot of the time because I just don't have enough time. But if I could be on every single one, I would, because you would find a bigger and bigger audience. And I think I, that's what tourism is going to need is people that are so focused on how do you share and share well during this time? Cause we're not going to bounce back as quickly as we want. And that's just a hard thing to, to know. Um, and so learning more about social media is going to be key. And that's what I'm trying to do because <laughs> our younger demographic isn't always there. <laughs> and finding time to do it. You're right. That's the hardest part. Yeah. It takes a lot. I mean, 
TikTok might be a minute long, but how do you do it fast and edit and do it all on your phone? And like, <laughs> we're just, I'm not hip with the kids. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm, I might be 33, but I feel 83. <laughs> I, I hear you. <laughs> I'm not going to say what I was going to say. Thank you. <laughs> Speaking about relative ages. Gosh, I'm going to move on to the next question now, Shaylee. <laughs> I hope this all stays in. What is the advice that you would give to emerging museum professionals and or students who are thinking about a career in the museum field? Yeah, uh, I think try everything. If you are given the opportunity to intern, do it all. <laughs> go with collections, go with exhibits, go with it all because you will learn something new every day and you'll use every single part of it because you won't enter on top. You know, you're not going to just be telling people what to do. You are going to be told what to do and you're going to have to somehow manage some people. So it's this weird tight walk roping of, of involvement um, and also take every opportunity to network and get involved in the community because that is a huge part of my job that I, I think I knew was coming, but I didn't think I knew how much. Um, and, you know, being from a small town and then going to a small town, I think I knew how to navigate it. Um, but depending on what size you're going to go to, you're going to have those growing pains of, of how you network. And really it's, I think at any town, no matter big or small, you just play stupid until you know what's going on. <laughs> And don't speak out of turn is the biggest thing I learned is like, who's that? I don't know. You know? <laughs> like, I don't know that drama, um, but also diversifying your skills. Um, because when I went to Casper College, I went for um, construction technology as well and really thought I was going to work in uh, restoring old houses. That has not happened. <laughs> but I was told multiple times by my board, I got my job because I'm adopted and I know how to work with power tools. So I, I told the story of you taking shop classes and knowing how to build things several times to people when they ask, you know, what kind of advice, what can I do? What can I do to improve my portfolio? Mm -hmm. like, learn these things because mm -hmm. it's not something that a lot of people grow up with. And no. if you have the opportunity to learn these things, you should. Absolutely. Like, I think if you could learn how to do a CDL at the same time, do it. That'd be the one thing I would have done as well just in case, <laughs> like, like I can drive this truck. I can transport my own stuff. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I would rather learn how to drive a forklift. That's just me. That's true. How to drive a forklift. <laughs> I think there's probably a lot of things they don't like to do, Patty. No, I pretty much do everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Come on down to Kansas. They let me in a bobcat. <laughs> like, let's go. <laughs> All right. Well, that was all of our questions for tonight. Shaylee, thank you mm -hmm. so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we appreciate reconnecting with you. It's been awesome. Yeah. Yes. I miss my cast for people. <laughs> Love you all. <laughs> that wraps up this episode of The M Files. We'd like to thank Shaylee for joining us and sharing her insights and experiences. Before we sign off, keep the conversation going by following us on Facebook at The M Files Podcast. We want to hear from you. Email any questions or comments about the show to the podcast at gmail.com or message us on Facebook. Our next episode will be dropping on Friday, January 29th, and we will be talking with Lauren Hunley, community historian at the Western Heritage Center in Billings, Montana.